Take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 14, please. Uh, chapter 14, we're going to begin reading in verse 43. We read this last week, but we, we're going to pick up again and talk about something else today. Mark chapter 14, verse number 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Father God, we're so thankful for your word. I pray now that you would fill me with your spirit to preach it well. Help us, Lord, every one of us to uh, set aside anything else that's crowding into our mind right now. We know that we have an adversary who would, uh, who would keep us from hearing your word, who would get us to think about other things and distract us from all, in all kinds of ways. But I pray, Father, the Holy Spirit would just descend and take over and help us all, Lord, to concentrate and hear you today. Uh, speak through me. Speak to me first. I just pray that this would uh, do a work in my heart, as it already has in the study. But I pray also, Lord, that we'd all be changed, and that we would think very seriously about this extremely sobering thought. Help us today, Father. Uh, May I say the things I ought to as boldly as I ought to, and say nothing I ought not. Help me to be kind where I ought to be, and bold where I ought to be. Just use this time. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have read about them this week. They were model Christians. At least that's what the news article described them as, model Christians. In reading the attached news article, you might have expected to find a a story about someone's great accomplishments for the Lord Jesus Christ or their involvement in their church or something like that. But instead, as you read this article that was headlined, Model Christians, you read about a family, a couple husband and wife, who had 13 children that for the last few years they have tortured and abused terribly, chaining, padlocking them to their beds, never letting them out, starving them, allowing them to bathe one whole time per year, buying them toys and gifts only to let them see them but not touch them, put them where they could watch them but not have them. This couple who kept their kids chained to their beds, laying in their own filth, absolutely tortured, were described in the news as model Christians. And they were obviously quite far from it. Now, part of the blame for such a misleading headline could be placed at the feet of our antichrist media. There's no doubt about that. They try to print anything they can that's anti-God, and it would bring disrepute upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But reading the article removes that option, frankly, because the people who described them as model Christians were their own people, their own family, their own friends who had described them that way. That's how others saw them. And, of course, once the truth came out, those friends and family were shocked at the truth upon hearing what was really happening in that home because the couple had hidden that. They had lived one way in their private life, in another way, in public. And so from the public perspective, they appeared to be model 
Christians, but in the confines of their own home, in the confines of their own hearts, it's doubtful they were Christians at all. And the fact is, we can do that, can't we? We can live in such a way that we can fool the entire world. We can, we can have everybody convinced that we're a believer, but in our heart of hearts, we realize in reality, we're not Christians at all. And that brings us to Judas Iscariot, doesn't it? One of the truly fascinating characters in the Bible, I know we just talked about him a little bit ago, but uh, here we are again talking about him because he's come up in our, in our text. Judas Iscariot, he was one of the twelve, verse 43 says, he had walked with Jesus for three years. He was such a model Christian outwardly that not a single one of the other disciples ever suspected that he was anything other than a model Christian. And yet Judas did this thing. Judas, the model Christian, Betrayed Christ and betrayed him with a kiss. And in that betrayal, he demonstrated this model Christian wasn't a Christian at all. This man came so close. He literally kissed the door to heaven and went to hell. I almost titled the sermon that way this morning until I saw that headline, Model Christians, and realized how well it fit here. But that was him. This family whose children were tortured and abused appeared to all to be believers. Judas appeared to all who saw him to be saved, but he was not. And I'm convinced this morning the Lord would have us to think very critically about those two examples. Paul told us that we ought to periodically examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. Prove your own selves, he said in 2 Corinthians 13.5. And I think he didn't say periodically, but I think we ought to do it. Periodically, For how terrible must it be to go through life fooling everybody only to find out in the end that you've come so close but missed it. Kiss the very door of heaven and gone to hell. You know, the Bible does say that Jesus is the door to heaven. Uh, actually, he's the one who described himself in that way. In John chapter 10 and verse number 7, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. Now think for a minute about what Jesus was saying there by that statement. He was describing himself as the door, and in so describing himself, he was saying that he was the entrance, he was the way into heaven. And he was saying, not only that, but he was saying that he was the only way into heaven. Notice he didn't say, I am a door. He didn't say, I'm one of many doors. He said, I am the door. And it was a truth that he proclaimed in many other ways. We quote John chapter 14, 6, Maybe nearly every week from this pulpit. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusive. I know it's popular in our pluralistic culture to hear that all religions worship the same God. Or that all religious roads lead to the same heaven. But regardless of what others say, according to Jesus Christ himself, there's only one door. And that door is him. And that door opens onto the most exclusive club that has ever been. And most people miss it entirely. This is a very sad truth, but it is the truth. According to Scripture, most people 
miss it entirely. Again, that's not my words, that's Jesus' words. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. It is a door that is found by few and missed by many. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. One door. And I think it's interesting when I think about the door, Jesus being the door to heaven, I think it's an interesting thought to consider that that door only opens one way. You ever thought about that? Been to Disney World a few different times. How many of you have been to Disney World? Really? Nobody's been to Disney World? You go through the turnstiles there or any place like that. You go through the turnstiles and you see an illustration of this. You can walk into the park, walk right through that turnstile, turn around and try to come back. Can't do it. It's one way. You're locked in. And I think it's such a wonderful, wonderful truth. You can get in, but you can't get out. It pictures the fact that once we've been saved, we can't ever be lost. We are... Forever and eternally and irrevocably secure in Jesus Christ. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Another time he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's. That was the door that stood open before Judas. But rather than step through it, rather than enter into the joys that could have been there had he done so, instead he chose to kiss the door to heaven. And then he went to hell. Verse number 45 is our text. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, we ought to pause for a moment and consider some of the things that took place in the garden right there, because it was a very interesting few moments that took place. First of all, we have to consider the kiss itself. The kiss itself. Judas had previously agreed with the the leaders of the people that, that that's the method he would use. You see that in verse number 44. He said, the one that I kiss, he's the one. And, and that would have been a very uh, common thing for people to see. It would not have stood out. It would not have surprised anybody. Uh, kissing on the cheek or kissing on the forehead in that culture was a normal method of greeting. It would have been perfectly normal for him to walk up to Jesus and so greet him. But the word that's then used in our text is a different word. It goes beyond the normal kiss of greeting. I think Judas wanted to make really, really sure everybody knew exactly who he was pointing out. Because the word there is a word that's an intensive compound verb. Katafileo is what it literally is in the Greek. And it means that he kissed him fervently. One source said the word indicates a prolonged kissing designed to give the crowd a chance to see the one to be seized. Ray Stedman's a pastor that I like to read his sermons. He's with the Lord now, but he described this kiss like this. He said the kiss of Judas Mark uses the normal word for kiss, which means to love, in telling of the arrangement Judas made with the chief priests. They were to seize the one whom he kissed. But in the actual moment, when Judas carries this out, Mark used an emphasized form of that word. A word that means a prolonged kiss, a lover's kiss. 
I do not think that there is anything in all the annals of treachery more contemptuous than this kiss of Judas, a deliberate, prolonged, apparently loving act done. Done done with cold determination to accomplish his own purpose. Alfred Edersheim wrote, As the band reached the garden, Judas went somewhat in advance of them and reached Jesus just as he had roused the three and was preparing to go and meet his captors. He saluted him, Hail, Rabbi, so as to be heard by the rest, and not only kissed, but covered him with kisses, kissed him repeatedly, loudly, and effusively, Ketaphileo. The door to heaven was in the garden that night. Judas kissed it, but he never entered in. There was one very, very ancient poet who said, Judas, dost thou betray me with a kiss? Canst thou find hell about my lips and miss of life just at the gates of life and bliss? Think about the kiss. And then think about Jesus' response to the kiss. That's also an, that's another amazing thing. It's not provided for us here in Mark. This, this account of the betrayal is told in all four Gospels, and so we have to bring them all four to bear on this. And even though Mark doesn't really share uh, Jesus' response, uh, it is shared in Matthew and Luke. Matthew twenty six fifty. Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Luke twenty two forty eight. Jesus said to him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And Judas' betrayal with a kiss shows just how low the human heart can go. But Jesus' response shows just how high. Look at what he said. He said, friend, why have you come? He called him friend. Is that not astonishing? He called him friend. I can't help but imagine how that must have stabbed into even a heart as depraved as Judas, it had to have cut him to the quick. Friend. It was a word that offered forgiveness, even from this. And it was a word that promised a yet open door, a yet available relationship, if he would have but walked through even then. And it's such an example, is it not, of the forgiveness in the Savior's heart. It's such a lesson to us of what we ought, how we ought to respond when others treat us poorly. One man wrote about this. He said, this betrayal was easily the most hurtful and grievous in human history, but Jesus was not conquered by it. Nor was he taken captive by personal hatred. In fact, by calling Judas friend, he was still reaching out to him. And we are called to do the same thing. Have we ever been betrayed? Even worse, has it been with a kiss? Do we feel that we are entitled to hatred? Jesus says we are not. There's another interesting thing here, and I I think we ought to think about. I mean, there's the kiss, and there's the response of the Savior to the kiss. But let's talk about the sword for a minute. Sword is an interesting little detail in this story. Verse number 47 tells us that one of those who stood by unsheathed the sword and went to work with it in a vain attempt to, uh, I suppose, protect the Savior from this betrayal. We don't know who it was from this passage, but we do from others. John tells us that it was Peter. That's how he identified him. John 18, verses 10 and 13. Peter took a sword and whacked off the ear of Malchus, as we know from one of the other Gospels as well. Now, I don't know about you, but I love Peter. I, I just love Peter. For all his failings, this was one gem of a man. I mean, you have to think about this for a minute. There were only two swords among their little group. A 
according to Luke chapter 22 and verse number 38. Two of them, and one of them was apparently strapped to his side. He is surrounded by, oh, I don't know, a hundred guys, all of whom are carrying swords and clubs. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not sure which I'd at least rather have somebody whacking me with, a sword or a club. Either would be pretty bad. He's surrounded by this. And yet out comes that sword. He's instant to take them on, outnumbered, completely unskilled, as his point of aim would point out, and uh, yet he's swinging anyway. Imagine the sound of hundreds of swords unsheathing right then. Imagine the tense moment after his sword has found its mark, and all of a sudden he is surrounded by a tightening ring of guys with clubs and swords. Now, Jesus diffused that tense moment. He told Peter to put the sword away. It was not the time and the place for that. There was a, a bigger story that was unfolding here. And he also injured the, the uh, injured, or healed the injured man's ear, according to Luke 22:41. And so all the swords returned to their sheaths. But I just think it's such a fascinating part of the story. And it just, once again, gives us such a glimpse into this man, Peter. Well, there's one final scene that we have to think about that took place in that garden. We have to mention it. It's not seen at all in Mark. It's seen in John. And so let me just read you a little bit of John's account uh, where he gives this wonderful little nugget of truth. John chapter uh, 18, verse number 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. And now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Only John tells us that little detail. Why did they fall to the ground? The Bible doesn't say, but I, well, actually, I think it does say. It just doesn't explain it very plainly. We have to think about it a little bit. Why did they fall down? They fell down because they were in the very presence of God. That is why they fell down. Every English translation I consulted recorded Jesus' words as, I am he. When they asked, and when he asked, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. That's what every English translation says. But you know what? That's not what the Greek says. I don't think that's what Jesus said. The word he is not there. It's ego emi. I am. This was Jesus proclaiming to be deity. This was Jesus reminding everybody there that though it might not look like it, he, God, was in complete control of what was happening. And what a glorious reminder that is to, to, to all of us. It doesn't matter how many swords the enemy might have surrounding us, how many clubs they might be holding over our heads. They don't have enough. They don't have enough. Well, there's all kinds of things we could talk about. I just want to point out a few of the different little uh, aspects of the scene itself. It was quite a scene. But let's draw ourselves back to what we're, our, our main thought is here today, and that is this. That with all this that was going on, there was really two characters they were the center of this drama. There was Jesus Christ, and there was Judas Iscariot. One was the door to heaven standing open. The other coming so close, kissing the very door of heaven, but walking from that garden lost forever. Think about Judas walking away from there. I don't know what position he held in the crowd at that moment. I... I didn't see it in any of my study of Scripture. I don't think the Bible really tells us. I don't know if he led them out. I tend to think he probably trailed behind. I tend to think he was at the back. The 
wherever he was physically in the group that evening, he was spiritually in that vast throng that missed the gate to heaven altogether. He had come so close, but now he was walking away lost. And the application to us is clear, is it not? Outward appearances are not sufficient to prove inward faith. We must examine ourselves, whether we are in the faith. Some, some are only outwardly Christian. Judas looked saved. Judas acted saved. Judas held a church office. He was the treasurer. He witnessed and he preached. And yet Judas was lost. He participated in great victories and revivals and campaigns. He was a model Christian. And yet Judas was lost. Just like many others who outwardly appear to be Christians, who play the game well, but in reality are lost. Judas went to hell. He went to hell. We don't have to question that. We don't have to doubt that. We don't have to wonder at his fate. I hear some people sometimes, and I think even movies have been made about this sort of thing, that try to indicate that somehow, maybe somewhere along the line, Judas got his heart right, and he's in heaven today. No, Judas went to hell. And he is in hell today, and we know that because Jesus told us plainly in his great high priestly prayer. He said, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas went to hell. Judas is in hell today. Judas, the preacher, went to hell. Judas, the church treasurer, went to hell. Judas, the soul winner, went to hell. The healer went to hell. Judas, the caster out of demons, the companion of Jesus Christ. Judas, one of the twelve, went to hell. Judas, one of the leaders and respected members of the twelve, went to hell. And so too do many who fool others Outwardly, but inwardly have no real relationship with Jesus Christ. John said in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you who practice lawlessness. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Paul did say, he told the Corinthians, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. The betrayal of Jesus Christ by Judas Iscariot, invites that very self-examination. Each of us, it forces to confront the question, am I certain that I am saved? Are you certain that you are saved? I'm reminded of the poor deluded souls who on September 11, 2001, flew jetliners into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and into the ground in Pennsylvania. These people believed they would soon be in paradise. They believed it enough to die for it. What a horrible thought. What a horrible surprise must have been. I, I can't imagine their horror when the flames that burst around them when they crashed into those targets never stopped. They found themselves in hell. How sad to spend a life in church and go to hell. How sad to fool the whole world and find out God was never fooled. How sad to live a lie all of your life, only to have it horribly exposed at the great 
white throne judgment. Billy Sunday said, a man is a fool who thinks because he doesn't believe in hell that his opinion shuts the door and puts out the fire. A man can slip into hell with his hand on the doorknob of heaven. And that was Judas, the model Christian, the man who kissed the door to heaven and went to hell. 